John Tory sitting in here for Reshmi Nair at uh, 4.35 and a half. Uh, and uh, that was, I mean, people will think these things are all contrived or made up or whatever. Uh, Premier Doug Ford just called in because he was, and he said he wasn't listening. Well, how, how could he call in if he wasn't listening? But having said all that, uh, it is, you know, and, and, and believe you me, his staff wouldn't necessarily want that to be happening on a regular basis uh, because they know that, any public figure, including myself, when you were there, are, you know, you just increase the chances of making some mistake or saying the wrong thing if you do some kind of a unplanned call. But uh, it was good that we had an opportunity because I do think that government uh, is doing some good things when it comes to actually worrying about something that we don't spend half enough time worrying about in this country or talking about. It's a complicated subject, but how we can be more productive and more competitive and more innovative because that's what's results. Uh, that's what results in job creation, which in turn helps people to make more money. Money, which in turn helps us to pay for all these programs uh, that we have. And so I think that's very important. Uh, and then I was able to raise with them something, if you'd been listening, we had talked about earlier on in the program, which is why it is we can lose 490 people. And we're going to talk about that with our smart speakers coming right up. Why we can lose 490 people who died, who lost their lives in 2022, right in the city of Toronto alone, and we just, to drug overdoses, and we just don't talk about it. We don't. And, uh, you know, he indicated they were putting some resources into it, but I made the point, I hope, uh, on your behalf that uh, we're not doing enough. Whatever it is we're doing, it's not enough. Smart speaker time. Matt Gurney, who I know to be very smart from years gone by when I was sitting here before and we chatted about, about various things on this show. And he used to be, in fact, the person who would come and fill in when I was away. And he's the co-founder and editor of The Line, an online magazine and a columnist for TVO. Matt, welcome. Good to be here. I've gotten dumber since you knew me best, but yeah. I'm still happy to be here. Haven't we both? Uh, Sunil Joe Hall, who's a <laughs> professor in public policy and society at the University of Toronto. Sunil, welcome, professor. Good, good afternoon. So let's talk uh, first. Uh, Olivia Chow gave, I was saying that it's a kind of ritual for politicians to go through that you give a series of year-end interviews. I used to do like 10 or 15 of them. Uh, and Olivia Chow gave several today. And the one in the star writes her up as saying that she's thankful for uh, the help that came from Premier Ford and that agreement that they reached uh, this year. Uh, but that she goes on to say that the feds have got a, a step up uh, in 2024. And I think that probably is a fair summary. And it's not trying to minimize uh, many other things she's got involved in since she got elected as mayor. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, the provincial deal was a good thing, Matt, uh, but the feds are still not there and have to be there in order to complete that puzzle, especially on the housing front. You know, far be it for me to be cynical so close to the holidays. Um, but, but go ahead. Yeah, well, thank you for, uh, for the permission. Look, the Liberals federally are going to probably have some ideas already, but they're going to want to keep them in the back pocket until closer to the election. I know that... You know, I far be it for me to suggest that any politician would ever act cynically, but th they can read polls, right? Like they know that even in uh, Toronto, the current numbers would actually result in a number of conservative seats. They probably have almost two years before the next election, but it's a minority government, so you don't know for sure. They're going to have some goodies they've already decided upon that they're not going to announce until they absolutely have to. It might not all wait for the election. There might be some things they decide to trickle out strategically strategically, um, whatever it suits their interests, but whatever the deal, uh, uh, Miss Chow or Premier Ford is actually hoping to get out of Ottawa, they might have to wait as long as almost two years to get all of it. Okay, now now standing against that a little bit, Sunil, is, and I had this conversation as he would confirm, I'm sure directly with the Prime Minister in my office last August, is that when it comes to housing, which is, is you know, for understandable reasons, a very 
acute uh, priority of people, uh, people both who are here and people who are going to come here. Uh, if you don't announce the money and get started, you know, people are not going to believe in other promise on housing. They want to see houses that are being built at the time of the election two years from now, not to focus at all on elections. And so I think maybe on the housing front, they will act sooner uh, and that she'll get some relief on that because even if it's for political reasons, that's what they have to do in order to be seen on the biggest issue to be acting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've seen the federal housing minister, Frazier, has been kind of cross, crossing the country, announcing housing accelerator fund money flowing to different municipalities. I think those conversations are underway with Toronto right now. I mean, the challenge that Toronto is facing, even under the deal that they struck recently with the Ford government, is so many of these deals are contingent upon tripartite funding um, with Fed, provincial and city money coming to the table that the feds haven't come to the table yet on the subway trains under that deal or the homelessness prevention right. money. And to Matt's point, I mean, if the federal government starts trying to cut new deals, it just puts the city further on the hook to come, come up with their third or their share of the funding. So, I mean, I think Mayor Chow has got to be in a position where, hey, we love support. We love uh, we love funding for key priorities, but more of it has to be covered in, in its entirety by the federal or provincial governments, because Toronto just doesn't have that same fiscal capacity to come to the table with a third uh, of the money for all of these uh, promises. That's right. Now, within the context of exactly what we've been talking about, namely sort of where do you put the money first and make the investments first, uh, one of the big priorities that has um, you know been uh, put on the list in the context of this uh, deal between the NDP and the Liberals in Ottawa is pharmacare. And, you know, on the theory that there's not an unlimited supply of money, Pharmacare is something that they've nonetheless both committed themselves to. And yet you find when uh, you have a survey come out today that it is by far not the top health priority named by Canadians. And I was speculating earlier, I think a good part of the reason for that is because so many Canadians, whether they should be complicit, uh, com uh, complacent about this or not, are in drug programs through their employer or otherwise. But the bottom line is, they say, Canadians do, if you had money to put into healthcare, we would have you put it into more surgery, more surgery, better emergency rooms, and so on. Is this a, a, an instance where politics is triumphing over sort of practicality in terms of what Canadians really want and need? Matt? Um, I think so. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I have a, a longstanding tradition of blaming the voters for everything, and I don't exclude <laughs> myself from that. We collectively are often dumber than our combined parts. But I think this is one in which we're actually getting it right. There are Canadians out there where uh, drug affordability is a huge issue. We do have some plans in place, like some of them are very niche and specialized plans for people who have uh, catastrophic drug needs. You know, there we hear these stories sometimes, right? Someone who can live along long, natural, happy life, but their drug expenses for some rare condition are going to be 200000 a year. We have programs for that. We have more broadly applicable programs, to, uh, in Ontario at least, I remember when Kathleen Wynne rolled them out, to take care of the drug needs for children under a certain age and for seniors over a certain age. And then most, not all, but most of what's left are covered like I am, and I'm, I'm probably like you guys might be mm -hmm. as well, by some kind of private workplace plan. I think, you know, if you if you tell, tell the average Ontarian today who can't get their parent into a long term care home or their mom's waiting on like an 11 month wait list for knee surgery, what's your most pressing issue? It's not more of what you've already got. It's fixing the problems that are hobbling your life. 
Well, yeah, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I think, look, this is a whole other subject we can't uh, take time to discuss today, but it also is our, you know, our obsession or whatever you want to call it with uh, universality. And, you know, the people you talked about, the ones who are suffering catastrophic illnesses with huge drug costs or people like that, if they wanted to have a national program, I would start there uh, and then, you know, work your way through uh, as, as, as best you can and maybe put the rest of the money into the knee surgery for the person that's been waiting 11 months and so on. But uh, Sunil, it looks like, I guess, in this case, politics, namely the agreement between those two parties, uh, is going to dictate that we're going to sort of roll out, albeit maybe very slowly, a, a national pharmacare program for everybody. And that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, the challenge is our healthcare system has many holes and is leaking mm -hmm. all over the place. And for that, those roughly 20% of Canadians who don't have insurance to cover prescription medications, this will be, uh, in some cases, quite literally a lifesaver. I mean, if you don't have those, uh, if you don't have that coverage, I mean, that means you're paying out of pocket for potentially very expensive drugs. It's putting more costs back on the public healthcare system if you're unable to have medication for diabetes or other types of uh, conditions and the, and, the, and the fact is our labor market is increasingly churning out the kinds of jobs where uh, people are part-time, temporary and contract roles where they, they aren't getting that coverage through their employer. So, I mean, this is a big gap that we've known about for decades in our in our public health care system and I think it's important to, to address, but equally important are those long-term care issues, are those yeah. issues with people unable to have a primary care physician and so on. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, all I'm saying is let's deal with that 20% first and not try and be uh, do everything at the same time and then fix uh, use some of the other money to fix the um, the surgery and other things that people care about. I'm talking to Matt Gurney and Sunil Johal, our smart speakers for today. When we come back, we'll talk about Donald Trump and a very historic court ruling that may not stand up over time. And we'll talk about the CRA firing some people and we'll talk about that. It's 445 with John Tory sitting here uh, filling in for Reshmi Nair, just coming up on 4.51, as I was saying earlier on, on the second uh, shortest and second darkest day of the year. I don't mean dark in any foreboding way, just dark because it's dark early in the morning and it's dark early in the afternoon. And it all gets better after tomorrow. And that is one of the great things about the first day of winter. It gets better every day after that. Not because of the cold. I don't mind that myself, but it's just because it's sort of dark and uh, it's better when it gets light. Matt Gurney is here, co-founder and editor of The Line, an online magazine, and he's a columnist as well for TVO. And Sunil Johal is here. He's a professor in public policy and society at the U of T, our smart speakers for this afternoon. So we read that the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, which everybody loves to hate, has actually done something here that's a good thing. And I guess that's why they announced it, because it's unusual they would announce personnel, things like this. They fired 185 employees for inappropriately claiming COVID-19 emergency benefits. So I'm not so much wanting to discuss, um, you know, uh, that they fired them or not, but you may have opinions on that. I'm more just sort of astonished that people who would work for the government and who would work for the CRA in particular would sort of think it was okay to take a benefit worth 2000 a month when they didn't lose their jobs. I mean, they were still there. I assume these people were all being paid. That's why they were fired. But is, does that surprise you, uh, Sunil? 
Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, the, the vast, vast majority of our public servants uh, are very ethical and, and follow the codes that they're expected to in terms of appropriate behavior. But unfortunately, you've got a small number of folks who who didn't in this case. I mean, it seems like there was even a broader number who had claimed uh, the benefits, but maybe were entitled to them because they were on contracts or mm-hmm. student empl- employees and so on. But in this case, it looks like there's the 185 who were likely full-time employees who, who shouldn't have claimed the benefit. It, it, unfortunately, Unfortunately, it happens. I mean, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and think maybe there was just some confusion about eligibility rules and they did something they shouldn't have. But uh, yeah, it's hard to hard to kind of comment on. on And and I think I guess they had to take the step they did to fire them because you have to sort of set an example. Uh, And, you know, to your point, I mean, 185 out of I don't know how many people work in CRA is probably like 25,000 or something. So it's not a huge percentage, but it still just astonishes me, Matt, that that people, uh, you know, would would not think this through or ask somebody. And I, I I presume you do support the decision they've taken to dismiss these 185 people just because they have to. Well, like you said a minute ago, not only do they have to do it, it's not a shock that they're telling the world that they did it, right? They have to maintain public confidence in the institution, such as it is. You know, I've got literally like a foot and a half to my left from where I'm sitting right now. I've got an envelope from the Canada Revenue Agency that I have not had the courage or emotional strength to open yet. And I'm I'm hoping now it's an announcement that they fired these guys. Like maybe it's actually great news and they're just reaching out to tell me directly. But look, all kidding aside, the thing that really jumps out at me, John, is that this is brazen like this is like people inside the cra concluding that they're going to defraud the cra in a way that the cra will not capture exactly that's that, that's just layers of idiocy there so, so maybe they're like, being I, fired for stupidity as opposed to malfeasance yeah. Well, I mean, it can be both. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm very open minded to that. But yeah, like gr- great luck in your future endeavors, guys. And mm-hmm. don't let the door hit you on the way out. Exactly. Uh, I was talking. I talked to Premier Doug Ford when he called in a while ago. I'm sure you had that experience in days gone by with his brother back in the day, uh, Matt. But um, I, you know, I, I commended them on taking some steps to improve productivity and so on, which I think they're one of the few governments that's doing it. But I also said to him, based on a discussion we had earlier on today on the show about 490 people dying in the the city of Toronto last year from drug overdoses and that nobody was talking about it and that nobody included governments weren't really talking about this. And I compared it to the number of homicides and the number of pedestrian deaths where all kinds of time is properly taken up trying to get those numbers down, which are tiny in comparison. What what are we going to do to get the attention of governments? And all of them are involved in one way or another to actually look at this as the crisis that it is when in one city, admittedly the biggest in the country, 490 people last year died of drug overdoses, and we don't really talk about it except when reports come out citing these very numbers. Sunil? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's an issue that we don't know about. I think it's something we just need governments to take action on. I mean, there's there are art- articles about this. There's news about this. And I mean, for governments, they don't need more lobbyists or stakeholder groups telling them to take action here. I mean, they know there's an issue. Uh, it's a matter of dedicating resources, staffing, supports to uh, these people to ensure this doesn't happen again. And it's not a story unique to Toronto. I mean, this is a story that's playing out mm-hmm. across major cities and even in rural and remote communities 
across North America uh, right now. And, it, and it's tricky. That's I mean, that's one of the challenges for governments. It's, it's not an easy answer. It's not kind of like if you just do this, this will go away. I mean, it's kind of a complex, multifaceted, uh, integrated approach. But it, we need action. And I don't, I don't think more attention is the issue here. Governments take action all the times on things. When they're under don't pressure. Don't get a lot though. of attention. When they're under pressure. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. I mean, I think in this case, it's incumbent from a humanitarian and kind of just the right thing to do perspective to take action, even if even if it's not on the front page of the Toronto Star every day. Matt, what is it going to get to get that action? Because I, I normally think it takes some pressure, but, you know, Sunil's right. I mean, doing the right thing should be a powerful motivator. It certainly was for me when I was in public office, when you could, whenever you could. Yeah, I, I think, John, I, I believe you on that, being motivated by doing the right thing. But I also think the words you kind of tacked on to the end of the sentence tell some of the story, right? Like being in public office, you probably aren't able to do all the good things you wish you could. And I just don't mean good things as in yep. things that will be leaving the city nicer or something. I mean, literally saving lives. There yep. are limits to your ability, both in terms of intellectual bandwidth and political bandwidth and your staffing resources. But I think it, the, the blunt truth that I would offer, and it's an ugly one, I think, but it's one you probably had to deal with more than once. People just don't really care about this issue. And to Sunil's point about getting governments involved, and John, to your point about wanting to do good works here, probably the hardest good works you want to ever have to motivate a government to do are the ones where the public really just doesn't care. True. And I don't like having drawn this conclusion, right? But as long as these people are quietly dying out of sight and out of mind, and there aren't needles in my kid's playground, this is not an issue that's going to be top and center of my mind, and I should know better. Like, I know what the stats are. I do feel the stirring of moral conviction, but I don't know. Somebody else comes along and distracts me here. This is one of those problems. I hate to say this, but we have this problem for a reason. And the reason is that there just isn't a critical mass of political pressure to do much about it. Well, I, I entirely agree with that. It's a sad statement, but it's one of the reasons I raised it today. So we have time for a short snapper on something very important and we'll undoubtedly end up discussing this going forward. Uh, what do the both of you think uh, the chances are that the ruling in Colorado that takes Donald Trump's name off the ballot for uh, the primaries will stand up. And there's going to be similar rulings for, for or against him in a number of other states. So it ends up in the Supreme Court of the United States. And the real question is, what do you think the chances are the Supreme Court of the United States on a scale of one to 100 actually uphold uh, any ruling that would have him taken off a ballot for any kind of election? Uh, Sunil? I'd say probably a twenty, given he's appointed three of the nine justices and pretty has high, kind of super, pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty high, super majority. So, like, yeah, yeah. I, I was hoping to not read any news about Donald Trump, but I think that's all we're going to be getting for the next three to four months. Right. So, Court Matt, do you think it's any higher or, or lower than twenty percent that that, that those, oh. any of those decisions will be upheld? The, the only honest answer I can give you guys is I have no idea, but I assume the number is very low. So I'll I'll echo Sunil just out of geniality and go, sure, we'll call it 20 percent. But I, I would just say to anyone south of the border who may happen to be listening, do not count on the courts to save you here. Mobilize, mobilize, fundraise and vote. That's all that's going to save you. You're so right about that, especially those courts down there. I hate to say it in the bastion of democracy, so-called, but I think that's very true. I promise uh, not. I only took up a minute and a half talking about Donald Trump. So I was uh, showing mercy. Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line uh, and columnist for TVO, Sunil Johal, professor in public policy and society at the U of T. Thank you both very much. It is 4.59 and we'll be back after the news at five. Uh, for, and we're going to have uh, Jagmeet Singh on, in fact, in the next hour, the last hour of the show for today. John Torrey sitting in for Rashmi Nair.